Good morning. It's good to be with each of you this morning. I do have a bit of a cold this morning, so I probably won't be greeting you at the back, but I'll be there to talk to you, but I probably will avoid the greeting just to, in case I have what's contagious. I think most likely it's just a uh, seasonal cold thing with the weather changing, but it's good to be here this morning. Um, I felt led to continue on in the study on Hebrews. Um, The last one I had about a little over a month ago was on the faith chapter, chapter 11, and I was going to pick up from there, and I realized that I had stopped early in chapter 10, and I thought there was some really good things to look at. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10, and we ended on verse 25, and we're going to pick up on verse 26 this morning. It may feel a little bit contradictory, I don't believe it is, but... My last message I talked about, can we be born again and yet sin? Can we, um, if we sin, does it mean we're not born again? And I believe we looked at it in a biblical way that it depends if it's a lifestyle of sin, if we're just living in it, or if we are just failing um, time and again. And whether we're repentant of it or whether we're sinning willfully, and that's what we're going to look at this morning here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be brought thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him who hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord." And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sin is sin. It's something that um, I've talked about this before, but I think it's important that we don't try to categorize sins into different groups and say, well, this sin is a severe sin and this sin is just a little sin, a little white sin. It's something that in serving in a Central American country, um, I learned more about because of the heavy prevalence of Catholics. I'm guessing this is true in any area in the world where there's a lot of Catholics, but the idea that if you commit a little sin, it's no big deal. You just go to the priest the next Sunday the next Saturday, and confess it, and you can just kind of keep living in that sin if it's a little white sin. But if it's a terrible sin, then it's different. I don't believe that's how we should look at it, and yet it's obviously different. I believe it is different whether we sin knowingly 
willfully or whether we do it out of ignorance. Anyone that is here this morning has grown up in a church or even just been in churches in their lifetime and have sat under biblical preaching, I believe it's fairly hard to say that we are unknowingly sinning. But once we become a believer, I believe is what it's talking about here. It says, if we receive the knowledge of truth, and yet we just continue to willfully sin, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Does this mean that that person no longer can be, can come back to the faith? And I think this is a real struggle for people, especially those who have family members who were once believers and have now fallen away from truth. Even if they claim to be a Christian today, but if they just are not living a biblical lifestyle, living in what the Bible clearly calls sin, is there hope for them? Is there opportunity for them? And I don't believe this passage here is indicating that there is no hope. Um, the Bible elsewhere talks about, you know, until, we're, until we breathe our last breath, there's always hope for repentance and salvation. But I believe what it's saying is that it becomes very, very difficult. And we'll see that as we move into chapter 12 of Hebrews. It gives a biblical example in the Old Testament of someone who just over and over repeatedly did what was, he knew was wrong. And it says, it indicates that it got to the point where he could not repent. And I, it's a hard thing to understand. It's difficult for me. But yet I believe there are people today that have done that, that have hardened their hearts, turned away from God. And so we need to be careful, no matter who we are, no matter what our life experiences have been, that we don't just sin over and over willfully when we know it's wrong and expect that at the end of our life we'll be able to just ask God's forgiveness on our deathbed and it'll all be okay. We need to be careful that... We don't. Basically, it talks about it here. Making a reproach of Christ. Stumping on him. Kicking him in the face. Another way we'd be able to say it is crucifying him over and over again by our actions, our sin. Also, we need to be careful to not get the idea that if someone sins unknowingly, that it does not count as sin. Um, the Bible talks about sins being, the wages of sin is death. If it was true that, and I believe there are, and I know there are people out there teaching today that those who don't know that it's sin can be saved with, without knowledge of Christ, can end up in heaven. I don't believe that's true. We have different places where Jesus told his disciples uh, Matthew 28 is the most famous one, 19 and 20, where he told his disciples to go out and to preach to all nat nations. If it had been the fact that as long as people didn't know about God, then the sin didn't really matter, Jesus wouldn't have commanded his disciples to go and teach all nations and baptize them and to make disciples. 
But I believe there is a difference when someone grows up without knowledge of God. I believe God's grace is there for that person and God wants to draw that person to him. But it's more, the, the warning here in this passage is to those who have known, have served God, and then fallen away. Verse 31, um, I want to reread that. It says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When I read this, I had to think of the Jonathan Edwards message that is very famously known. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And my mind went to that title, and yet I was thinking about it. It is not the same. It it sounds similar. But is God angry? Is God an angry God? Does he lash out in anger? There's a lot of people that are resistant to the idea that God is angry. They say, no, God is loving. He's all love. How could God be angry? And they, they teach that anybody who teaches that God is angry is wrong. But may, I, I also think we can go too far the other way and just we just should not think of God as constantly angry, sitting up in heaven, white, white, watching for us to fail and to jump all over us. Because he also is loving. But we need to be careful that we don't get too far either way to recognize that God is love, but he's also just and demands a demands repentance. It's not because he's angry, but it's because he's righteous and requires um, a, a penalty, a, a consequence to sin. I'm thankful this morning that that's not the end of the story, like we had in our Sunday school lesson this morning, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, without that, it would be hopeless, but with that, there is hope, and there is opportunity for repentance. But this passage is not saying that God is an angry God. He says he's the living God, but we should fear falling into his hands. I don't believe that believers need to fear falling into his hands. If we're a believer, we're a child of God. We're one of his. We can look to him as a loving father and not as a God, an angry God, a vengeful God. It does say he'll take vengeance But it's, I believe, for sin and not for his anger against people. In the Old Testament, we had numerous times where God appeared to react in an angry way, but it was always in dealing with sin, unrepentant sin, just very open sin. So I'm going to continue to read here. But to call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. 
knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye had done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So this first group of verses I read here in Hebrews 10, I believe is pointed at those, aimed at those who once believed and then are now gone back into sin and warning them to be careful. The second group of verses here, verses 32 to 39 Paul is now talking to the author of Hebrews, talking to those who are still living faithfully and encouraging them to keep on. Recognizing that there is a fight, that there is a battle, there's things that we must face if we are faithful. But yet, there is a reward. Um, I don't think it's wrong to come to God to avoid hell. That's our initial reason for repenting of our sin and seeking Him. It's also not wrong to serve God looking forward to heaven and the rewards of a faithful life, of a faithful servant. But we also, hopefully, will have a love for Christ, a love for God that will continue to fuel our Christian life. Give us the strength to keep going. But when those, those, especially those who are under extreme persecution, whether it be in North Korea or Iran or wherever, those believers do need something to make it, to, to make it worth it, to worth the struggle. Um, the verse that we read this morning in our Sunday school lesson I thought applied very well here. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all we are of all men most miserable. Some people have tried to claim that, well, it's worth it, even if there's nothing after this life. That might be possible to say if you live in America with the freedoms that we've enjoyed for the last two hundred years. But For believers who are living in persecution, that is not true. There would be an easier path to follow whatever the customs, the culture around us is doing to fit in. But Paul says that we would be just miserable if that was our only hope. But our hope is because of what we looked at in our Sunday school lesson, the resurrection that gives us Faith and hope that there is something after this life. Because also it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And that's what this passage, latter verses here in chapter 10 of Hebrews, Paul talks about all the things that they are going through and enduring. Reproaches, afflictions, And um, even if they hadn't gone through it, it talks about you were companions or friends, brothers and sisters of those who did. 
But yet, Paul talks about being able to joyfully... I'm sorry, it talks about the joy the people took in hurting them. But yet, we, they could keep going because it was something more to look forward to. There was something beyond this life. And verse 38, Now the just shall live by faith. Not that we live by faith only. We can't, but it, but it does, but we cannot just live a godly life without faith. It's not possible. We either live a life of just following the rules or live a life of looking good in man's eyes. But to be a faithful follower of Christ, we must have and put our faith in God. I think many of those who struggle with um, accepting the fact of the resurrection of Christ. I think it's because of their struggle to put their faith in God. It goes hand in hand. And so one way to, uh, one response to not having faith in God is to try and deny the resurrection. To try and deny who God is. Now for the second part of the message, I want to jump to Hebrews chapter 12. We are going to switch gears a little bit here, but it's kind of the way it goes with expository preaching. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. As we looked at in Hebrews chapter 11, there are many, many examples of those who were faithful, suffered many things in the Old Testament, and yet remained faithful. We have the same in the New Testament today. We can look back at the many people. We have the martyr's mirror that covers a lot of the last 2,000 years of hundreds and thousands of people who were faithful to God, a faithful witness that suffered a lot. But as it says here, besides all that, most importantly, we have Jesus to look at as a, an example. He came to earth, he endured temptations, suffered at the hands of the cruelest justice system I think the world's ever known, the Romans, and yet he was faithful. He didn't deserve it, but he was faithful anyway. And so we have that example. If we're struggling with whatever, if we in the future go through persecutions and tortures and all that, we have a godly example in Christ that he went through just as much or more. And so it's possible with his help to go through it also. 
Verse 4, I struggled with understanding what it was trying to say. I looked, up, I looked it up in the Matthew Henry commentary. Um, and his thought was that as Paul was talking about what they had all went through and all their struggles, when it says, not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, it's basically the idea of that they had yet not given the ultimate sacrifice. They had not died for their faith. But yet Paul was trying to encourage them, give them hope for what they had gone through, what they had struggled against. If nothing else, struggled against the, the temptation of sin and yet were faithful. Now I want to pick up and read verses 5 to 11 there of, Rome, or of Hebrews chapter 12. And ye have forgotten the... The exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof are all, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be into subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth joy to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised Thereby, I'm not saying this is true, but I, I believe that it's probably the the, the second least uh, liked concept in the Bible, and that is that God would discipline or chasten His children, His followers. The most being the most difficult for people to accept. I believe is the concept of needing to repent. Many, many proud people today, some even claiming to believe in God, and yet, when they're pressed on this subject of repentance, will justify themselves and say that they have no need of repentance. It's a very difficult concept, but when we come to this one, I think it also is very difficult The idea that God would discipline us, chastise us. Isn't he supposed to be loving? Isn't he supposed to care about us? Is the the modern argument, the culture we live in today. But yet Paul explains it. It's like this. If, If God loves us, he's going to discipline us, chastise us, correct us. If he didn't, that would mean that he did not love us. And I believe for those of us who grew up in homes where, fa- where our father loved us, cared about us, we may not have all understood it at the time when we were going through it. But I believe as we grew older, we understood that they were correcting us, disciplining us for our good, not just as vengeance or 
because they wanted to hurt us. That what they did it for our good. I remember as a child talking with peers, with other children, about a sibling or someone, maybe even yourself, being disciplined. And it would often be uncomfortable chuckling or laughter associated with the story or an example of being disciplined. It often wasn't something very pleasant to think about. And I think the same can be true today. If we're observing a believer going through something difficult, it may be hard to understand why is God allowing that? And yet it's because he loves us, not because he hates us. It's all in how we take that discipline and chastising makes a big difference. Just as the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5.45, I believe that bad things happen to both unrepentant sinners and born-again believers. The good, the bad, they both come to us. But I believe that most of the time when bad things happen to sinners, it's connected to their sin. It's connected to their rejection of God. But in the case of Christians, I don't believe this is usually true. It's not that God is just punishing us for our sin, but rather he wants us to grow and learn and to trust him more. One of the best examples I could think of this was in the story of Job. This is a hard story for us to look at sometimes. Especially if we're going through a difficult time in our own lives. Was what God allowed in Job's life, was that discipline, correction, chastisement? Job didn't deserve what happened to him, I don't believe. Job 1.1 ESV version says, There was a man in the name of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. Job didn't need, Job didn't need punishment for sin, and yet God allowed Satan to do much harm to him. And you could argue that Job did not need correction, did he? But yet, why did God allow Satan to make him suffer? I think there's three, I think there's, 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 to an unbeliever, there can be punishment from God for sin. But in a believer's life, I believe that bad things can come from two things. Not all bad things in our life happen because of God doing them. Sometimes it's Satan doing them. So we shouldn't always just blame God for everything bad that comes into our life. Because if it happened to Job, I believe it can happen to us. That God takes away his protection for a short time and allows Satan to bring bad things into our life. I don't know for sure. But I don't believe that God, when he corrects us, 
will use destruction and evil things. So when we think of the story of Job, there was death and destruction all around Job. His servants were killed, his animals were killed or stolen, his children were killed. If those kind of things are happening in our life, I believe they're from Satan. God allows it, but it happens from Satan. I believe God's correction are things that are different, but I could be wrong. It's just my thoughts on it as we look at that idea this morning. So what could God use? What does correction from God look like? Um, some of the thoughts I had, and I'd be happy to hear yours afterwards too, but I believe his correction can come through health problems, through financial problems, relationship difficulties. Maybe we lost a job and we don't understand why. Maybe we had a friendship fall apart and we don't know why. I believe those are ways that God instructs us and disciplines us. Not to hurt us, but to help us grow and become stronger and better and more righteous children of his. As we look at the outcome of the story of Job, even though it was things from Satan, in the end, God received the glory. Job was corrected when he was wrong in his view of God. But God did make it clear with Job's friends that they were in the wrong more than Job. But there are times where those difficulties can be very, very difficult for a believer. Job's wife told him to curse God and die, just to give up. And yet, he did not turn his back on God. And that's the difference here in this passage as we look here. If we reject the discipline and correct chastisement that comes from God, then it says we are bastards. We are no longer God's children. We're turning our back on our relationship with God. But if we accept that discipline and correction and chastisement, it can help us grow in our relationship with him. Now I want to read the verses 12 through 17 and just kind of wrapping up things. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Look diligently lest any man Fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby may be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have had inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And he was the one I was referring to at the beginning of the message. We need to be careful. We need to make, it says, straight paths for your feet. Don't give place for Satan and sin. 
Follow peace with all men and holiness. Looking diligently. Be diligent in our walk with Christ. Or else we may find ourselves like Esau. Outside of the blessing and the plan that God had for him. He even sought with tears that he would regain the birthright. But because of the hardness of his heart and his rejection of God, he lost it. And may we not do the same. In closing, let's turn to Psalms 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications, in thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness, and enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul, he hath smitten my life down to the ground, he hath made me to dwell in darkness as those who have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed with me, my heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble, and of thy mercy cut off mine enemies, and destroy all of them that afflict my soul. For I am thy servant. And I hope that's our prayer this morning, that no matter what God takes us through, no matter the good, the bad that he brings to us, that at the end of our lives, we will still call ourselves his servant, his child. That we will ask God to teach us and lead us and to quicken us. And as we look forward to a week of revival meetings, I hope that that is our desire. Not just to come and put in time, not just to come and take up a seat in the pews, but to learn and to grow in our life and our spiritual walk with Christ. The Lord bless each one of you.